This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for those who care for us. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition of Airing Pain is supported with grants from the James Weir Foundation, the Hospital Saturday Fund and Erskine Cunningham Hill Trust. When you're in a one-to-one, you have this interact with the patient and the patient says, oh, you get me, you understand what I mean. But when you're in a group consultation, you have that light bulb moment, but you have it with lots of people and you have it in the room or you might have it virtually on a screen, on a Teams meeting, and you have light bulbs going on everywhere where people are saying, you get me, you understand what I'm going through. And that is enormously powerful, that realisation, that light bulb moment that other people understand what I'm going through. At the end of July 2022, an estimated 2 million people in private households in the UK, that's over 3% of the population, were experiencing self-reported long COVID, with the highest percentages in Scotland and Northern Ireland and the lowest in Wales, living with this potentially devastating legacy of their COVID-19 infection. In this edition of Airing Pain, we'll be looking at how long COVID is treated and how an innovative scheme developed for the management of other long-term conditions is now being used for the management of long COVID. So, at the time of recording this edition of Airing Pain in September 2022, what do clinicians know about this new disease and what can be learned from established recommended treatments for chronic pain conditions such as fibromyalgia? Dr Deepak Ravindran is a consultant in pain medicine working at the Royal Berkshire NHS Foundation Trust in Reading. He's the clinical lead for the pain medicine service in the secondary care hospital. He helped set up and leads the community pain service for Berkshire and more recently it's long COVID service. Right now, because long COVID is a syndrome, you know, so many organ systems are affected and so many symptoms are there, we are making use of the existing knowledge and existing symptom management techniques, but putting it together in a program fashion, in a way that we can safely deliver it to patients who are struggling with this. We can't expect them to go to six different doctors or six different therapists in five different places to get seven different drugs. So what a lot of clinics, and there are 90 such long COVID clinics in England, and they do have links with pain clinics. They are starting to develop links with other pain clinics and other specialities. Ours is probably unique in the sense that we are the first and still the only pain clinic to actually lead on the long COVID clinic as well. So what we are doing is taking that understanding of pain management programs that we give for persistent pain patients, where we are able to provide information about many things in an integrated fashion. We're taking that same base model and then trying to apply it locally for our patients. So what does that look in actual practice? For example, let's take the exam, maybe a a 40-year-old woman who has got long COVID. Her typical symptoms would be pain, would be fatigue, would be brain fog. She would have chest pain and shortness of breath along with palpitation. She would have stomach bloating and she would have an itchy skin or sometimes a frequency to get more infections because the immune system is not playing well. 
her dietary changes would be there. So if this is a typical set of symptoms and she gets post-exertional tiredness with any kind of activity, we speak to the cardiologist and we are now comfortable in saying if there is palpitations or shortness of breath or heart rate related issues, we can investigate for that. And if this major structural issues are ruled out, we can think about medications that have been used for heart rate control, we can prescribe that. So that's one thing we can look after. Similarly, for shortness of breath, we know that in previous times, inhalers of certain kinds, steroid inhalers could be given. So we use that as a prescription there. We may have techniques for pain. So there are some nerve pain medication. We can trial that. So we could give medications as one go, which I support with. We can teach them about interventions to retrain their breathing system. So that is a way of almost retraining the nervous system that controls the heart rate and breathing and give them relaxation techniques or different ways of breathing. And we work with the research projects to bring that together. You may have symptoms of, you know, the GI, gastrointestinal tummy symptoms. There is a suggestion that giving simple things like antihistamines can sometimes calm some parts of the immune system down. And so we can make suggestions of that to the GPs to trial. All these are relatively low cost, easy to do, familiar techniques that GPs and doctors are familiar with. So there isn't a harm in giving these for the patients. These are not experimental technologies, so it's safe to do that for patients. And then we combine it with giving them some information about pacing strategies, understanding how to pace your activities so that you live within that energy envelope. We give them information about sleep techniques. Nutrition is something very interesting because one thing we realize with fatigue management is the way I have been taught, and this is something I have learned myself from my therapist, is apparently the virus can affect the energy factories in the cell. It happens in persistent pain patients as well, in fibromyalgia patients as well, where fatigue occurs. So the energy factories in the cells are impacted such that if you think of us as a mobile phone that can get charged to 100%, when your energy factories in your cells are affected, it's like the battery capacity just can't charge to 100%. So you're always left with being charged to 70%. And so the reframe that we have to have is if all we had was getting up with a 70% battery in our day, how are we going to spread our activities such that we live within that energy envelope of 70%? And to have that conversation with patients, to have that discussion with them, to almost encourage them and coach them to think about that capacity in a different way, that's a conversation we've had to have our own training with. That's been the learning that we have taken back to our pain management programs of how to deliver information about pacing. And then when we do a program, we're able to combine this. So that's what we do in our program at the Royal Box Hospital. It's what our community partners are able to deliver that management of long COVID and all these symptoms together. And that's what our colleagues in primary care are also able to bring that in the primary care in the same way. So we've tried to replicate this and not just keep it in a secondary care specialized setting, but actually be make it easier to give it for patients rather than making them wait longer. 
Dr Deepak Ravindran. Well, this all comes together in an innovative programme in which consultations are held with groups of patients rather than on an individual basis. And rather than with a single clinician, say a GP, sessions are taken by different members of a multidiscipline team of clinicians and therapists. Dr Rupert Joshi, a driving force of the group consultation initiative, is a GP at the Woodley Centre Surgery near Reading in Berkshire. I started setting up the group consultations back in 2017 as face-to-face, pre-pandemic, and it was really because what I was finding with patients is was that the 10-minute appointment just wasn't enough. Uh, there was so much more in-depth discussion that needed to be had, and we had our frequent attenders. They would be coming back again and again because we weren't really answering the question And the question was really the personalised care agenda. What matters to you? And I think we were really medicalising things when perhaps patients needed more. They needed more of a holistic approach. So a group consultation is essentially having a consultation with a patient one-to-one but in front of a group of other patients. So other patients can then learn and it may be questions they'd never even thought about It may be, oh, I've always wanted to ask that, but never really asked. And what we find when we do our group consultations is they're not really very medical. They're more about coping with the illness and getting advice from other patients. So it's not all about questions and answers. It's about bringing the rest of the group in and saying, oh, that sounds really interesting. What do you do about that kind of problem? How do you manage it? And then the patients start sharing their own experiences, their own stories, their own support and and you end up with a support network where they often speak to each other outside the sessions and and take each other's numbers. We had one group consultation where somebody said oh I'd really love to start going swimming again I think that would help my exercise and then two other patients said oh I'll come with you and then immediately you've got a group where people encourage each other and, and you go because you don't want to let other people down and you want to help them with their health conditions. I presume it's not just one session, it's a series of sessions. Yes, it depends on the condition that you're managing, but particularly with these kind of conditions, one session is just not enough. We normally look at six or seven, and we like to have a group maybe every two weeks or monthly to get the momentum going, and then maybe we might meet up maybe three months later just to check in or a month later. We ask the group, you know, what is it that you want to talk about? Um, how often do you want to meet? And we go by the group and, and when would you like to meet again just to touch base? And in those touch base sessions, we don't even have to be here. It, you know, maybe the patients can organise it for themselves. This was very much a integrated piece of work as far as our area was concerned. We were lucky that our commissioners came to us and said they have some funding available to try some pilots on how to provide personalized care. How can we reach patients quicker and closer to their home? And so we had this wonderful GP colleague of ours, Dr. Joshi, who was already doing this kind of technique called group consultations. Even before COVID happened, she had a team in her practice who were supporting chronic pain patients, diabetes patients by using this 
technique of group consultations. It meant that she, along with a counselor and a pharmacist and a nutritionist, were able to support these patients in the practice, giving them access to information earlier. And my role at those times was to work with the primary care colleagues and actually talk to the patients as well and say that it doesn't mean that patients are not being referred into secondary care or or should not be referred in or uh, as a cost-cutting measure like some patients often think about it, you know, why is the GP not referring them into hospital if they need it? This was more of a combined working strategy wherein these patients might be waiting four to six months to see us in secondary care. But if I went out to primary care and I had this forum where I could reach 10 or 15 patients and tell them that if they needed medication advice, that could be provided. If they needed nutrition advice, if they needed some advice on breathing techniques, relaxation techniques, rather than waiting 10 months to come to see us, they could get it within one month and they could get all of that stuff that they need. And if they needed some medication advice, then obviously the GP could discuss with me. And between both of us, we would still have a plan that's faster and efficient for the patients. We have a facilitator, a non-doctor, and then we have a clinician who is an expert in, in that field. And we also have plenty of other clinicians that come in. So we've got health and well-being coach, care coordinators, mental health practitioners, a personal trainer, diabetic nurse, pharmacists. We utilise the skills of everybody in our team and invite them along for certain sessions. So when we did menopause, our menopause doctor, our women's health doctor came in and helped facilitate that session. But, you know, it's not even the control because it's all of us together. It's a group. And the clinician learns as much as the patients do because, you know, I felt quite humbled with the chronic pain clinic because I really understood how it must be for a patient with their day-to-day activities and and how they cope. And it was a real eye-opener for me. So everybody learns, everybody has the control within the group. So you're doing these group consultations for long COVID patients. How might that differ from doing it, say, for diabetes patients or COPD patients? With those kind of conditions, you have a management plan in place. You know, you have your inhalers, you have your medication, you have lifestyle factors, nutrition, and you sort of know what you're dealing with. Whereas with long COVID, each patient has a different set of symptoms. Some of them might suffer with the fatigue more than the headaches. Some might be suffering with the mental health side of things. Because it's a multi-system illness, everybody's different. With all those differences, are there common things that can be addressed? Yes, it's the personalised care agenda. It's asking patients what matters to you and developing different systems of support. So we designed our long COVID clinic, talking to the hospital, reading up, going on websites, finding out what are the most common themes that patients are talking through. And we developed our programme of support. We asked Dr Rivandrum to come in to take our first session and called it the science of long COVID. And we talked about the inflammatory processes that go on, why they go on, why do you have these symptoms, what can we do to help. And for some of our patients, it was actually the first time they've met other people with long COVID. 
So they had felt, you know, what's happening to my body? What's happening to me? I don't understand this. Our present understanding, and this is something that has evolved with time. Initially, we thought that people who have had very severe COVID and who needed hospital admission might struggle with symptoms of the impact of the viral infection on their lungs or on their heart or on their muscles. And we thought that a lot of people with post-COVID issues would be those that needed hospitalization. We've now changed. In, in the two years that we've lived with COVID now, we have saying that long COVID is now a new long-term condition. This is a condition that is predominantly affecting people who have never been admitted to hospital but may very well have suffered a COVID infection that they managed at home. It is a syndrome, meaning that it's not just confined to one or two symptoms. It is actually a condition that affects multiple organ systems and it can have multiple symptoms. So one study from last year suggested that long COVID patients may have as many as 10 organ systems affected and they can report as many as 200 symptoms affecting various parts of their body and realistically that is what we are looking at a new long-term condition characterized by multiple symptoms involvement and there is no association with how severe the acute infection was. So it falls into the chronic or persistent pain bracket, really. It is one of those conditions where persistent pain is one of the most common symptoms that patients present with. Widespread aches and pains are a very common symptom alongside fatigue, which is again a very common symptom, then brain fog, as well as new onset mood changes, anxiety and depression, then heart-related problems like palpitations, shortness of breath. So these are the most common symptoms. Of course, less commonly reported but equally present are skin issues, new onset stomach problems like nausea, bloating, weight gain of some kind, loss of appetite, loss of taste and smell. So these are all the other things that have been reported, but pain in fatigue are two of the most common symptoms. Dr. Deepak Ravindran. Caroline Mole has had COVID three times and she's a participant in the group consultation sessions. I didn't know what it was. You know, I'm, I'm a woman of a certain age, so, you know, it can. I guess there's certain things that you sort of always put down to maybe menopause or anything. And I realised that, you know, the chronic fatigue that I was feeling, the pain that I was in, um, I was vomiting quite regularly, that I probably should have phoned the doctors. And it was at, at that point. And I did a little bit of research myself online to see what long COVID, you know, looked like, just in case. And it sort of seemed to correlate with some of the, the things that were online. Um, so I phoned the doctor and she said, yeah, I think you're right. I think this is what it is. How has it impacted on your life? I have always been really energetic before, I've always been very fit and healthy. 
it's impacted my job. I've got quite a, what I would say, a, a high-powered job. And day-to-day, that's been quite difficult. You know, just the brain fog, maybe. The getting out of bed some mornings has been, takes me half an hour sometimes because of the joint pain and things. The embarrassment of vomiting at work and having to stop a lot of the energetic stuff that I've always done. Even walking the dog has had its issues because if he's he's a terrier and if he's pulling a bit, if I've got patents in my wrist joints, sometimes I can't even lift food out of a fridge to take it out and put it into an oven because I live on my own. That can be quite difficult. I have been looking after patients with chronic pain, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, ME-like symptoms for a long time now, almost 20 years. And so when COVID happened and and I got a particularly nasty episode of the original variant of the virus back in March 2020 and, and I struggled. I struggled for almost two weeks and I kept having symptoms for almost uh, six or seven weeks before I fully recovered and I realized actually that this is what my patients with fibromyalgia or chronic pain might be feeling every day of their lives because for those first two weeks I was completely shattered. Just the sheer act of getting up and walking 15 foot across to the bathroom and back would leave me breathless, in pain and tired. And I felt that there would be this kind of symptoms and this group of patients who would be having such a presence after their acute episode. In fact, the previous epidemics that have happened in China Uh, with the SARS epidemic in 2009 and the ones that happened in Hong Kong and Canada, there were studies, but there were much smaller studies reporting that patients could struggle for two or three years after a SARS virus at that time. So to me, it felt very likely that after COVID as well, we would have a big group of patients who might be struggling with pain and fatigue and other symptoms. And I'm very glad that actually in the UK, the government and the NHS took this really proactive step of releasing funding to set up a long COVID clinic because it felt that all that experience that I had of looking after patients with pain and fatigue and other symptoms, because, for example, in a condition like fibromyalgia, they do have stomach issues, they do have brain fog, they do have fatigue, they do have issues of eye symptoms or blurring or tiredness and all of them have a common factor that the nervous and immune system can be impacted and stay impacted for a long time and we were already used to managing these patients in our pain clinics, with pain management programs, with the way we supported our patients. So it meant that when the funding for the long COVID clinics came in our area here, my specialist pain physiotherapist, my fatigue physiotherapist here, my psychologist and myself, we felt fairly confident that yes, we could look after a lot of these patients and provide them a more integrated experience-based model for a lot of their symptoms. And for some of their symptoms like heart rate related issues or breathing related issues, we had really good colleagues that we could sort of seek the help of 
and get some experience for some of them and as it proved over the last two years once the respiratory colleagues had done their x-rays or scans most of them were normal 99% of chest x-rays or lung MRIs or brain scans or heart scans all came back as normal and they felt that this was because the nervous system was being impacted by the virus and so it meant that we were able to support them with a lot of techniques that we had gained experience from our previous work with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, ME and persistent pain patients. What I find very interesting about that is that I have fibromyalgia and when the long COVID reports come out on television, my wife says, that's you Paul, that's you Paul. And I say, no, 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 no. Same symptoms, but there is organ damage with long COVID. I'm wrong, am I? The research certainly shows that in some people, there seems to be a microscopic evidence of organ damage. So there were a couple of studies that showed that there was lung changes when they did some really fancy form of MRI scanning, that there were possibly some brain changes in some patients who had very bad brain fog. And now we are having some research that is showing that in some people, the immune complexes might be causing some clots microclots as they are calling it in the social media and in the research papers and there is a leaning towards saying that in many people who are struggling significantly there may be an element of vasculitis meaning that the blood vessels could be affected and damaged by the viral infection. It's two ways to look at it, Paul. It's possible that there is a group of people in which these kind of structural changes are happening, but the researchers themselves still don't know what the implications of that are. What does that mean for treatment? Because we don't have a drug or a molecule or a treatment as such that's evidence-based and sustainable. The good side is, if it does turn out that the research into long COVID now 1.4 billion dollars of research money has been promised for long COVID in the US. Up to 35 to 40 million pounds of research money has been looked into the UK research projects there. And if it does turn out that in the next two to five years we have a, a molecule or a treatment or, or some intervention then I think that's a boon and a potential opportunity for existing fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and ME patients because there are so many similarities we are noticing between these conditions. Why can't we offer those treatments for the fibromyalgia patients? And maybe we can turn back and tell a lot of our fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue patients that yes, now that we have these investigations which showed some structural damage, maybe you had the same in your case as well. So it's a possibility. Dr. Deepak Ravindran. Caroline Mole again. I've had a bit of a flare-up recently, so I normally cook absolutely everything from scratch, but I thought I've got to make myself like, life a bit easier. So I've just bought some ready meals to go on with. How did the flare-up really affect you? Was it just a magnification of all the symptoms? This time I've got a little bit of a different, I've got a real tightness in my chest this time, which I haven't had before. 
and I need to just obviously speak to the doctor to make sure that it's not something untoward. But yeah, the aching joints just, I mean, I call it a flare up. They're there pretty much all the time, but you learn to live with it. It's a lot more painful. The chronic fatigue is something you can't really explain to someone unless they've had it. Um, I never knew, and I probably would have just thought, well, that's just tiredness until you experience it. And, you know, you can be in the middle of a conversation like this and all of a sudden your words can't come out and you just need to just lay your head on the table <laughs> and shut your eyes for a bit and things. So I have discussions with people about fatigue. All I can say is it is not tiredness it's like being hit by a torpedo that's exactly it and you know I can be at home my family will have come to visit and all of a sudden I don't realize but I'm fast asleep you know you can start to feel it where your words start to slur Um, and as you say it does it just feels like you've been battered and that's quite difficult I think when you've been quite energetic in life and I love my job you know it takes me in lots of different directions and sometimes you just sort of feel wow I've got a get through your day and that's horrible to feel like you've got to get through a day isn't it it's it's a real negative feeling I like to think I'm quite a positive person so I have to try and turn that negative thought into a positive and say actually I can get through today. That's Caroline Mole who's a patient in the long Covid group consultation programme. Greg Scott is a cognitive behaviour therapist who works for Talking Therapies, a psychological service of the Berkshire Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust. Talking Therapies has been an evolving psychological service since 2008. We started off seeing a range of conditions, primarily anxiety and depression, uh, including health anxiety, which kind of ties into how I ended up working with Woodley and the team here. So from 2017, there was a formal training started in long-term conditions the jargon word the basic conditions were diabetes heart conditions copd and diabetes but as a team we realized that we'd had a very narrow focus and actually when we started to open our focus to, to include the physical and the psychological and that more of a biopsychosocial model then we could start to see a relevance for what we were already doing But we also then saw that one of the difficulties um, is that if you've had a long-term pain condition, for example, you might not want to hear that you've also got anxiety and that could be treated in a mental health service, even though it's a primary care mental health service. So I've been in Woodley and Parkside, this site we're on, since 2017, initially as a therapist, but working with Rupert, got very quickly involved in the consultation groups and then they became the virtual consultation groups. But I guess the the real thing for us in terms of a response is that we've been able to invite a group of people that we know have had long COVID, have uh, some are recovering, some are going into, some have been diagnosed, into a virtual space, which by definition is safe in terms of not being reinfected. We've also been able to bring people together with a range of professionals and the chance to ask a range of questions, but also to hear other people's experience. It's been a real opportunity to have something that could touch a large group of people in an unobtrusive way into where they are, living at home or or working from home. So speaking with my talking therapist head on, really wanting people to, to 
I guess understand that the things we call anxieties and depressions are very common conditions. They're standard issue human conditions. They're not something that something wrong with you. If you've got those responses to your life circumstances, it's normal, and in some cases could be very healthy. So getting people together and having a chance to discuss anxiety in the context, as opposed to hoping people might refer into a separate service or hoping people will understand that this is where the long COVID lies and this is where the anxiety lies or this is where your low mood is hitting in with your fatigue, etc. So it's been an opportunity really to try and start those conversations with people initially in a, in a kind of very friendly environment. My name is Fatima Hafizji. I am a health and wellbeing coach and I work for the Wokingham North Primary Care Network. So we help to self-empower patients to get more control, get back in the driver's seat of their health, and actually focus on what matters to them when it comes to their own health. So really asking those exploratory types of questions. And very often we have a really lovely conversation about where their health is currently at and where they'd like to go with it. What we also tend to do as health and wellbeing coaches is really get to the specifics. So looking at SMART goals, people may have heard of that term, so really having a realistic goal. SMART, remind me, it's specific. Measurable. Measurable. Achievable. Achievable, realistic. realistic and Timely. And timely. Yeah. So... If someone, say, if I came to you and said, listen, you know, I've been unwell, ill, feeling rotten for donkey's years, I want to climb Everest. And that's mm-hmm. what my goal is. I want to climb Everest. Yep. That is not realistic. Yes. So I will say, oh, well, that's lovely to hear that you'd like to climb Mount Everest. Is there anything that you've set in place to help you to achieve that goal? And very often when I ask that question, it says, oh, that's interesting. I haven't really thought about that. And then we say, oh, but actually, that is my long-term goal. And then it kind of opens the doors to setting short-term goals, to really getting to that goal of climbing Mount Everest. It might be a case of training. So, you know, like you say, going on walks and things. So the patient might say, oh, actually, yes, you know, going on walks, that's not something that I would say and put those words, if you like, into the patient's head, if you like, but it would be a case of the patient actually coming up with the answers themselves um, and saying, oh, actually, this is how I want to start. And it would very much be around things like habit, attaching with a lifestyle goal that we would want to achieve. It would be attaching whatever change that we want to make, attaching it to an existing habit. So for example, if it was about fitness to help them to achieve climbing Mount Everest, it could be a case of they're brushing their teeth, and after they're brushing their teeth, they're doing two push-ups against the wall. How do people react to being brought back from that huge goal to getting out of bed in the morning? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when a patient is coming to see a health and well-being coach, they have taken the step and they know that they want the help. So when it comes to taking it back and how they react, from my experience so far, it's kind of, I want to say, a light bulb moment. Um, forgive the you know cliche, but it, it is. It really is that light bulb moment. And sometimes just having that reminder even and taking that step back because 
as you mentioned in the example you mentioned about Mount Everest, it can be huge in a person say, oh my gosh, that is an amazing goal that I want to achieve, but how can I even get there if it is something that they're struggling with pain or anything like that? But it really is about having that positive talk around, okay, that that's wonderful, but how can we break that amazing long-term goal into smaller chunks so that eventually over time that person can achieve it. So I think when those conversations tend to happen, it really helps patients to kind of think positively and say what's manageable for them, what can they do, especially if they are in pain, what can they do currently to help them to achieve whatever goal it is that they want to achieve. My name's Kerry Doe. I'm a personal trainer. With the long COVID patients, I work on the um, physical activity. So going back to exercise, returning to exercise after long COVID or during, you know, while suffering long COVID. So in that session, we'll talk more about how people are coping with the current levels of exercise that they're doing and how they can go back to exercise. And lots of the patients, when we first speak to them, you know, are struggling some days to do anything. They're not able to work, you know, they can't exercise at all. It's a real stripping back. Lots of them did lots of exercise before, ran, did biking, was swimming, you know, very active people. So it's very hard for them to go right back to kind of doing 10 minutes walk a day. They really have to strip completely back and do very slow increases, but doing regular exercise. It's almost retraining again, retraining the body to exercise, to be able to cope with exercising and exertion. It's a real issue with mindset as well, isn't it? Absolutely. What is exercise? One person's exercise will be doing a 10k run. Yeah. Another person's exercise will be walking to the shops Mm -hmm. or, or even getting out of bed in the morning. Yeah. But when those people who have been used to doing the 10k run Mm. are reduced to the bottom end. Mm. I mean, how do you change a mindset? How do you get over that? That's one of the most difficult things. And it's really hard for people to accept. And there is an element of acceptance there that for now, that they fight against it. And what happens then is they overexert. And especially when with long COVID, pushing yourself too much, then will knock you out for two, three, four days. So one of the first things we say is when you're starting to come back to exercise, even right at the beginning, you need to monitor during and then after, but also the next day. I often encourage everybody to keep a a movement diary, which really, really helps, not only just to see when they've pushed too much, but also it might seem silly doing an extra minute walk a day, if that's what we're beginning with, it varies, you know, but it's very small increments. But over the course of a month, that might be the difference between doing a 10-minute walk and a 30-minute walk. And actually having that diary and be able to look back and say, this month I can walk for 30 minutes. And it's been slow, and it's slower than I'd like, but actually last month I could only walk for five minutes. So being able to see that difference makes a difference. And then people are able to accept that they're going slower because they can see progress. But pacing is very, very difficult. Yeah. Because when you feel good... You want to push yourself. You want to do everything. Mm, mm. That's the real difficulty, I think. And a lot of the patients said once they were able to say no to things, social things, that was a big thing for a lot of people. They felt pressure with family and work and, and different parts of their lives 
and being able to actually say the best thing for me is not to do that. Once they're able to do that, I think it changes a lot for people. They're putting themselves first and, you know, lots of them are parents or they've got responsibilities with family and, and friends and things. And they're having to pull back and, you know, look after themselves as well. But once you see the benefit, it's starting, I think, getting started. But also, I think the working with the group clinics, especially with the long COVID patients, them having other people that were in the same situation and being able to talk to other people that felt the same was huge. And a lot of the sessions were very emotional, especially the early sessions, because patients had felt like they were on their own. Not so much early on, but some of the later patients knew a lot of people that had had COVID and they were back at work and they were, they'd recovered. You know, it's difficult to accept. There's not always a reason why it's happened. That was difficult for people and they felt that colleagues and family even and expected them to be better and they had that pressure there that I do need to push myself because everybody's expecting me to be better. So them seeing other people that felt the same way, had the same symptoms, I think that was one of the most important things about the clinic, actually. My name is Syra Merza, and I am an advanced physiotherapy practitioner for long COVID and pain management. So what's the physiotherapist's role in the management of people with long COVID? We help to create a management plan and strategies to help them have more control over this. For example, with long COVID, some of the main aspects that people struggle with are the shortness of breath. And it is very normal with this long COVID that people develop this abnormal breathing pattern disorder where you end up breathing in through your mouth instead of through the nose and that causes a whole array of different complications. So some of the treatments that we do are trying to get back to that normal breathing pattern. So it's a lot of breathing exercises, it's a lot of let's see if we can relax the system so that your diaphragm, your main breathing muscle, is working to the best that it can do to reduce the symptoms associated with that. And sometimes it's not always just the shortness of breath that people experience with that. It can be a chronic cough. It can have effects on your fatigue. So it does have lots of other symptoms. You may have noticed that as soon as I start talking about breathing, <laughs> I've stopped slouching and my head has gone forward. So just explain you know, how you would help my breathing. So when uh, people have any sort of virus, so for example, just the normal cold virus, we have those symptoms where, oh, actually my nose is really stuffy and I can't breathe through my nose, so I'm just going to breathe through the mouth. And then our body corrects itself and it's able to almost breathe in the normal way. With long COVID, it's almost created this habit of breathing in through the mouth. So what we like to get people to do is be in a really nice, relaxed position. For the majority, that is lying on your back. Some people find that lying on the back increases their coughing or that shortness of breath. That's fine, just go into a nice, relaxed position. And what we want to see is just you 
breathing as normally as you can. So when we are having this laboured breathing, as it were, sometimes you will find that your upper chest is rising a lot more than your abdomen. So that just lets us know that the accessory muscles, which are the muscles that assist with breathing, are working a lot harder. These muscles also connect into the neck, so they are helping with the posture um, and they are helping with the neck movement. So people might start to develop some neck tightness and as a result they can have headaches and so it kind of goes into the spiral. So if we can start to relax those muscles and focus on your abdomen, that is getting us into the right position. Ways that we can do this are almost having, if you're in a seated position, sitting on your hands, so you're stopping your shoulders rising up too much. Um, if you're lying down, you can have your hands behind your head, so you're almost stabilising that. And you're just making that diaphragm work a little bit more efficiently. Once we've kind of helped with that balance between these muscle groups, what we then want to see is if we can breathe in through our nose that little bit more. Now, when you're first doing it, because it's been such a long time that you've almost got used to breathing in through your mouth, it's going to feel really unusual. You're going to find that maybe you can't take as many breaths through your nose as you used to. That is fine. This is a progression. What people tend to do is they breathe in a lot through their nose, but taking that big deep breath can then introduce more coughing into the system. You can find where you're taking so much through your nose that you start to feel a little bit dizzy. So it's just a little bit too much if you are experiencing that. So what you want to do is start to take some small breaths through your nose and then breathe out through your mouth. And you might only be able to do two or three of those at a time and then just go back to your relaxed breathing. And so we're slowly introducing you breathing back to that way that we used to, to see if we can normalise it again. So in some people, it can take quite a while to get back into that way of breathing. Others, they can pick it up a bit quicker. So don't be disheartened if it does take a while. Um, don't panic, you're doing the right things. You just need a little bit more time to adapt to it. So once we have done it in that nice relaxed position, whether that be lying or sitting, to make sure that we continue with this improved breathing, we want to change our position because as we are moving position to a more upright position, that takes a bit more energy. It's a bit more of an effort. So you're going to find that your breathing might be affected and you might also feel that your fatigue gets affected with it as well. So if you're doing a lot of these breathing exercises, you might feel a bit tired afterwards. And again, because of the connection, that's absolutely fine. So we're just building it up that way. And the idea is that we change our positions. So we go from sitting to standing to doing some movements around the house, practicing this breathing exercise to try and progress it and build up your tolerance. That's Syra Merzer, Advanced Physiotherapy Practitioner for Long Covid and Pain Management with the Berkshire Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust. Before we go on, I'll remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professionals on any matter relating to your health and well-being. 
They're the only people who know you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Do check out Pain Concern's website at painconcern.org.uk where you can download all editions of Airing Pain and find a wealth of support information material about living with and managing chronic pain, including details of how to order Pain Matters magazine and for more information about this edition of Airing Pain. Now, it's important for us at Pain Concern to have your constructive comments or ratings about these podcasts so that we know that what we're doing is relevant and useful and we'd like to know what we're doing well or maybe not so well. So do please leave your comments and ratings on whichever platform you're listening to this on, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or of course, the Pain Concern website. That'll help us plan future editions of Airing Pain. So, back to the long COVID group consultations with Caroline Doe, Drs Rupa Joshi and Deepak Ravindran to end this edition of Airing Pain. I remember talking at one and just being really emotional because all of a sudden you feel you're not alone because it's not a visible illness is it it's it's not something that and people are still learning about it just being able to have those conversations I mean it was brilliant learning from all of the and listening to all of the professionals but the biggest thing I got out of it was talking to others who were in the same situation and drawing on their experiences. And all of us were trying to draw on the positives of it, you know, just so that, right, well, what did you do to make you feel that bit better and and being able to do that? I think that support group has really did change things for me in a huge way. Every clinician has their area of expertise. So we're really getting everything with the whole group listening in. So everyone's learning, everyone's sharing. And we learn as well as clinicians from our colleagues, from our mental health practitioner, uh, from our personal trainer, because everybody's got their niche of, of knowledge and skill. So everybody learns, not just the patients. It should really be something that we roll out for everybody with long-term conditions because it's so powerful. 100% of patients say they would choose it again, that they would recommend it to family and friends. So everybody really benefits from that approach. It turned my life around at a very difficult time, a time when you're trying to cope with, obviously schools were open the whole time, so I was working throughout that time of lockdown and things, but when you're not feeling well and you're on your own and, you know, everything then builds, doesn't it? And you sort of think, oh, am I going mad? You know, is this just as a result of being stuck indoors all day or something? And the group just took that feeling of being alone in this illness, I suppose, or how you're feeling, away. And it was, that, it was really, really great. Glass half empty. People who don't have long COVID but have other conditions might think, oh, all this money is going into long COVID. Glass half full. All this money going into long COVID could, should help the management of all those other things. Absolutely. That is my glass half full premise of looking at it, that every intervention and treatment strategy that comes out of our understanding of long COVID can be retrospectively applied and and I think should be applied or thought of for our existing fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, ME and maybe other long-term post-viral complications that many other patients are suffering from but we don't know. If you were able to give advice to somebody with long COVID what would you say? I've really learned to listen to my body. And if I have to say no, that I can't do something, that's not a failure. 
is a really big thing because you're actually listening to your body and I don't think we probably do that enough.